Yeah. I feel like that, uh, that quote from Star Wars, he's more machine now than man. It's like, God. Well, good morning. <clears throat> um, it's actually uh, really great to be able to have folks come up and do announcements for their ministries again, because it, it has been a long time. When we had that first, uh, you know, that two-week quarantine, um, my son was only three months old, and now he's two and a half and out of his mind. So it's, uh, a lot has changed since then. Um, but let me uh, pray for us. We'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and for your kindness, for your mercy, for your steadfast love, for you being slow to anger and relenting from disaster. These are things which we're going to talk about today. And these are things that tell us who, about who you are. Our purpose, Lord, in life is to know you and to glorify you, to be conformed to the image of your Son. So I just pray, Lord, that we would have um, opened spiritual ears, open hearts, open minds, that we would uh, take to uh, seriously the things that we're going to hear today, but, but also, again, Lord, whatever is from my own uh, invention and imagination or personal agenda, I pray that uh, um, your sheep would be discerning enough to know what's from their master and what's from uh, some schmuck in a shirt up here. So please be with us now, we pray in our Lord Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll be doing our penultimate lesson in Jonah today. So I don't know if that's good news or bad news. Uh, it's good news that I'm almost finished with this book, but bad news that you have to hear one more next week. So if you want to skip church next week, now you know. Uh, but we'll beginning, be beginning Jonah chapter 4 today. Um, in, in my Bible, this is just a two-page book, but I started it last June. So there's been a lot of, a lot of spiritual meat, a lot of spiritual truth in the book of Jonah. Um, it's been... You know, as somebody that does uh, Bible teaching, and if you've hosted Bible studies, you might realize just how much you get to study and learn about God's Word when you're going to present something, but then you have to distill it down to, you know, a manageable size and number of points for folks. So, it's just to say that uh, even a small book like this has even so much more than I've been able to share with you over this time, and um, hopefully we'll continue on with some of these more small books. Jonah 4, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word for God's people. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. So in our last message, we kind of reached the crux of our story uh, when Jonah finally obeys God, goes to Nineveh, and preaches there that God intends to judge them for their sinful, evil ways and destroy the city in 40 days. For this whole period up to the book, last message, we've been waiting for that. Is he going to go? Is he going to preach? What's going to happen when he finally gets there? And when this word that Jonah preaches reached the people of Nineveh and its king, a great scene of repentance occurs in which the people stopped what they were doing, fasted, mourned, 
turned from their sin and called out for mercy for God. Last week we talked in depth about what repentance truly means. And now this isn't just an antiquated word you read in some theological dictionary, but something that ought to be part of our even continuing Christian lives. Jonah 3 verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So what would you have written next if you were composing this story? Or if you hadn't heard about the, the fish book for your whole life, what would you expect to read next? You know, if, you hadn't, if you didn't know what the next paragraph was going to be, what, what did you, would you expect to be coming up? We might expect a scene of rejoicing and celebration as the missionary gets to see not just one or two converts, but an entire city turn from its sin and seek the Lord. Um, you heard of the missionary William Carey. He was seven years in India before he saw one convert. Jonah goes a day's journey into Nineveh and he sees 120,000 people repent. So this would be you know, similar to one missionary going into North Korea uh, and seeing all of Pyongyang up to Kim Jong-un stop their evil ways and seek repentance. And as a side note, we should pray for that. And in the book of Acts, we see sending churches celebrate when people turn to the Lord at, at the preaching of Paul or others. They were, they were happy when they saw uh, these Gentile nations or even Jewish uh, people turn to Christ. They, they celebrated. And today, we rejoice with our, our missionaries and in our own church's evangelism when we see people turn to the Lord. This is good news. When our missionaries come back, we, we love to hear how things are going with churches being planted and people coming to Christ. That's something that we celebrate. So this is how we would expect the book of Jonah to go into chapter 4. But that isn't how Jonah proceeds. He's not happy about the salvation of the lost, perishing people. And he's not happy that he actually might be the single most successful missionary in all of redemptive history. If you think about it, not even the Apostle Paul saw an entire city of 120,000 up to its king turn to the Lord. Jonah is described being exceedingly displeased and angry. And the note on the bottom of your Bibles would say that verse 1 can also be translated that Jonah viewed this as exceedingly evil. Something that this repentance is actually a, a, an evil thing. To put it bluntly, Jonah is apoplectic that these brutal enemies of Israel would turn and be spared. But we ought not to think, though, that Jonah is just being a bit of a child in his rage. So many times with these Bible characters, they act very humanly. But just because we're reading the story, we think, oh, this, this person's like a child. I mean, uh, I think more of us are is impulsive and talk first before thinking like Peter. I think a lot of us are um, like John or James, you know, trying to seek our position in the kingdom of, of God and being the, the high seats. And I think a lot of us are like Jonah. We have, we have reasons for our rage and for our anger. He did have feasible, feasible reasons to hate the Ninevites. Humanly speaking, that is, he had good reasons. These were enemies of Israel who had fought several wars against them, and they were infamous for their cruelty and their brutality. This is a people that is uh, famous throughout history for their, their savagery and the way they treated the people that they conquered. There are 
several peoples in history that are just, this is what they're known for, you know, piling up heads in, in, in pyramids as warning to people, skinning people alive. Um, and the Assyrians were people like this. And Israel had been the victim of this brutality on numerous occasions. So Jonah's feelings regarding Nineveh were similar to how, you know, a Ukrainian must be feeling toward Russia at our moment in history. You've invaded my lands, taken our cities, burned our towns and homes, you've murdered, tortured, starved, stolen our people, and you've shown every intention of doing more. Now imagine God telling a Ukrainian Christian to go to Moscow and preach against it. Well, at first, that actually might not sound too bad, and this kind of brings up an interesting little puzzle to our story. Because if the message that God says is that he'll overthrow the city in 40 days, then that Ukrainian in our story and Jonah would probably be sprinting to these, these places. If somebody said to uh, this Ukrainian soldier, go to Moscow and tell him that in 40 days they're going to be destroyed, he's going to be off like a shot. So that gives us the question, why does Jonah run away? If it's his enemies, his people's enemies, and God says, go tell them I'm going to destroy them, why, why does he run? And this is a question that has been left unanswered up until this point in the story. Um, why did the prodigal prophet flee from the presence of the Lord? Again, keep in mind when you're reading a book like this, uh, you, we can't become myopic or blind because of our familiarity with it. You can reread a book and a passage over and over and over and over and over in Scripture throughout your Christian life, and new things are going to come up. You know, how, how often has it happened where you've been reading a familiar passage, the Gospel of Matthew, say, and you read a passage, it's like, has this been in here the whole time? Have I ever seen this? When you're looking at Jonah, recall that it's not until here, chapter 4, where we're actually told why he ran away. And this whole time, the author's been leaving us in suspense. Then it's suspense, the Israelites reading the story would have wondered as well, why, why did he actually leave? You know, in previous messages, we rhetorically asked what the reasons might be, and I suggested perhaps this is to get us to think what our reasons would be and kind of uh, to um, maybe get us to honestly analyze ourselves in light of Scripture, but he still doesn't answer it quite yet. What would cause him to disobey, to flee from God's presence, and to ask to be thrown overboard in the middle of that ship in the storm instead of going to Nineveh. Because when this, God throws the storm to, to wake him up, literally and spiritually, and say, you need to check what you're doing, he says, throw me overboard. He still would rather die than, than go to Nineveh. It would seem, as I mentioned, that a message of destruction would be good news to any Jew living at the time. Well, verse 2 of our passage, which we've just read, tells us why, finally, why he ran away. It says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's really kind of a, a funny little verse because it kind of shows you how blind you get when you're living in an unrepentant sin. You, you walk around in darkness. You don't actually see the effect that your sin is having. And Jonah's sin has twisted his perceptions enough where he actually really hates the fact 
that God is merciful and gracious and relenting of disaster and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is like an accusation. Like, didn't I tell you this is what was going to happen? And isn't this why I ran away? Because you're a good God who loves people and forgives them? And he can't stand it. So the prophet finally tells us why he fled in the beginning of our book and why he's angry now. He knew that God was going to cause the Ninevites to repent and relent from destroying them. He knew how this was going to turn out. Jonah knew, as he said in chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation belongs to the Lord and that God was going to grant repentance to this people. And he knew that God was going to show mercy to the Ninevites and Jonah could not stomach the thought of God's loving kindness toward his enemies. He could not and he would not go along with God's plans. It wasn't out of fear of the Ninevites, but out of hatred for the Ninevites that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. And to use our Ukrainian example, this would be as if God told one of these Ukrainian patriots fighting for his life in his home, who's seen his friends and his family violently killed and maimed, to go to Moscow and preach and see the Moscovites all the way up to, and including Vladimir Putin, repent and turn to Christ Jesus. Would this Ukrainian be able to do that? Would he be able to overcome all of his pain, all of his hurt, all of his anger, and see these people forgiven and delivered, that the, the people that are actually doing these things? Um, and as a side note, we should pray for that too. If you've read um, Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, you know, she, she talks about how in World War II she was taken to concentration camps, Ravensbrück, and she talks about later in life how she's doing a conference because she come, becomes a Christian speaker. And she gives a good message, and she meets this old, older guy at the, who wants to shake her hand, and she recognizes him as one of her SS guards at Ravensbrück. So one of the Nazi SS guards who tormented her and oversaw the death of all these people is extending a hand right now. Um, what are you going to do? And are you going to go see Moscow forgiven? Are you going to forgive this, this Nazi? Are you going to forgive these Ninevites? Read the book. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell you what happens. It's, it's really good. So I think it's understandable, therefore, that Jonah should want to disobey God and flee to Tarshish. It's not just a petty tantrum. It's, it's wrong and it's sinful what he does, but his disobedience was actually on an, an existential level. It's not just surface-level passions like we mostly have. I think for a lot of us who spend a lot of time in the church, a lot of our sin is kind of just really quick things that come up. You know, uh, you get mad at the people in Port Townsend driving 10 under the speed limit, so you, you suddenly speak in tongues, French mostly. Um, or is that just me? Anyway, Jonah had deep reasons for hating the Ninevites. And in fact, if you consider it, he was being told to follow God in opposition to his national and racial identity. So in other words, to follow and obey God would have made Jonah appear to be a traitor to his own race, people, and family. Can you imagine going back to Israel, to Samaria, after the Ninevites repented? And like, hey guys, I have good news. You know those enemies that have killed us and burned our towns? I preached to them and God saved them. Isn't that wonderful? Um, the answer would be a hard no. And I wonder if that's why we don't know what happens to Jonah after the book. 
Presumably somebody wrote this, maybe it was him. He was going to his people's enemies so that they, the enemies, would be saved, and he couldn't do it. And this just gives such a contrast to the character of God himself, who is merciful and relenting of disaster toward rebels and sinners, those who are at enmity with him. Now, I've mentioned this a few times, but Jonah's hometown was from Galilee. And I can't stop thinking about the comparisons and the contrast between Jonah and Jesus. These two Galilean prophets from Scripture who had similarities and drastic differences too. And in the Gospels, even Jesus brought up these comparisons to Jonah. I remember when he says the only sign you're going to get is, is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the earth. So we see these similarities, but you know how different these two are, Jesus and Jonah. Jonah refused to go, even go to Nineveh at first, and when he did, he lived and the people repented. Jesus, the Son of God, left the comfort, peace, and glory of heaven and came to a people that rejected him and killed him. Jonah was angry that God saved his enemies. Jesus died so that his enemies would be saved. Jonah prayed to God in anger, in essence accusing God of wrongdoing for saving the Ninevites. Jesus prayed to God to forgive his enemies while they were nailing him to the cross. Jonah was angry and exceedingly displeased. Jesus is abounding in steadfast love, gracious and merciful. Jonah was disobedient to the point of seeking and wishing for death rather than obeying. Jesus was obedient even though it meant certain cruel death on the cross. Jonah was bitter and resentful at the repentance of his enemies. Jesus went to the cross because of the joy set before him of seeing many accounted righteous. Jonah finally went to a pagan foreign nation and they repented at his preaching. Jesus came into his own and his own people did not receive him. Jonah could not stand the thought of living with sinners saved. Jesus died in the place of sinners so that they would live. Jonah abandoned his people, his God, his profession of faith, and he fled. Jesus did not abandon Jonah. Christ is the superior prophet. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the full and final revelation of God. John 1, 14 to 18 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We see God being so gracious and so merciful throughout Scripture. And Jonah is a book which is actually replete with God's mercy, although you must stop and think through it at times. But consider how much effort, from our point of view, is given to redeem this disobedient prophet. We've asked the question before, why didn't God just let Jonah go and get somebody else? Why didn't God just drown him in the storm? Because of his merciful, steadfast love. God, in his sovereignty, saved the pagan sailors. 
granted repentance to the Ninevites, and now, in chapter 4, is still patiently teaching and refining Jonah, even as Jonah commits another great sin. He's judging and accusing God. If Jonah was angry at the repentance of the Ninevites, which he very correctly ascribes to God, and in his anger at the Ninevites' salvation, Jonah is ultimately angry with God. This is a judgment of God by Jonah. We see in Jonah this, this deep and terrible sin, which we actually all share with him at one point or another. Now, Jonah has a plan for how life in the universe should be run, and God is failing to conform the universe to that plan, and it makes Jonah angry enough to wish for death. How often, for us, do we get angry at the way life is going? And do we acknowledge when it is God that we're actually angry with? And how often do we get angry with God for the way He's sovereignly governing the cosmos? Are we angry with Him for our failures and our disappointments in life? Because life probably hasn't turned out the way you planned. Are we angry with Him for allowing our marriages to be unhappy or to end? Our children to remain unsaved or unmanageable? Our work to be unfulfilling and unsatisfying? Are we angry with Him for what He says in the Bible about submission and marriage, suffering of the innocent, sin and guilt, obeying and submitting to the civil government, eternal hell or election and predestination? Is the root of our anger really a refusal to acknowledge that God is God and we are not? That God doesn't owe us anything but justice for our sin? That God is the king and the creator and we are mere creatures of the dirt into which he breathed life? That God is the potter and as the potter has the right to do as he wishes with the clay and the pots have no right to answer back or question him? Does Jonah need, or excuse me, does God need Jonah's approval to save the Ninevites? And what business is it of Jonah's whether God saves him or not? Does the Lord God omnipotent need the advice or the permission of this disobedient Muppet from Galilee to save the Ninevites? The sin of Adam and Eve, the sin that plunged the world into the curse and the pain and everything horrible that we're experiencing today, was the sin of attempting to usurp God's place, of thinking that God wasn't running things as well as he should. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, deciding for themselves and ruling themselves. And humanity is always, always, always trying to dethrone God and exalt themselves. And probably you could say every heresy and false teaching that sneaks into the church is built on the exaltation of man and the demeaning and the denigration of God. We think too highly of ourselves and we think too lowly of God. And in so doing, we don't know who we truly are and we don't know who God truly is. And this makes us think that as rebellious, insolent, disobedient creatures, we have the right to be angry with God and to judge Him, giving Him some kind of pathetic performance review as if His next raise depended on it. We effectively say to him, if you want more prayers from me, better worship and church attendance, or more effort in serving you and loving others, then you had better shape up your performance in my life. 
when's the last time you've earned something extra from me? We basically hold our worship for ransom. I'm not going to worship you, God, like you deserve until you straighten things out for me. And do you think maybe this is the reason why we're so often so cold and apathetic and indifferent in our religion? That is our, our practice of our faith, our feelings in our faith. The reason because the Lord of glory hasn't lived up to our expectations for him. He's not living up to the job description that we made for him when we signed the the repentance and believing in Jesus card. Our anger or our indifference are caused by a failure to see God for who he is and what he's like. And this is why in the book of Hebrews, the author says, fix your eyes on Jesus. When we lose sight of Christ, the founder and finisher of our faith, then we start to lose this, this vision of God and we, we, we lose our, our way in our faith. So who is God and what is he like? You probably, or maybe you've seen this video of uh, R.C. Sproul sitting on a stage during a Q&A and somebody sends up a question and says, basically, you know, why is God so unfair and so mean to, to Adam when all he did was break God's commandments? And R.C. Sproul gets pretty irritated. He says, what's wrong with you people? This is what's problem with the church today. We don't know who God is. We don't know who we are. So who is God and what is he like? Daniel 4, 34 to 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Job 23, 13. He is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. Psalm 50, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons from the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Isaiah 43, 10 through 13, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there's no Savior. I have revealed and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 135, verse 6. Our Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Acts 17, 24 to 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Romans 11, 33 to, uh, 34 to 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is who God is. This is the God that we get angry with and who we judge and demean and ignore and blame and disregard. This is the God who we treat as if he's falling asleep on the job and maybe needing to think about retirement, who we think needs us to help him across the street and give him advice and finish the work for him. Sometimes I feel like we think that God, when he was younger and more fit, is the God of the Old Testament, but now he's just kind of gotten old and he's semi-retired now. I mean, we treat him that way, don't we? We have a, in our minds, we often have a very clear distinction between God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. But this is who God is. And believe it or not, I actually had to stop myself from writing more verses down. These verses are just the smallest part of what the Bible has to say about who God is and what he's like. But just this small sampling of scriptures should help us in answering the question that God now asks of Jonah in verse 4 of our passage. Jonah rants, he says, I would rather die, Lord, than see this happen, so please kill me. In verse 4, God says, do you do well to be angry? And this is an amazing question, really. It's a, it's a loving challenge to Jonah's behavior. So instead of lashing out in anger, like I probably would do, God again shows that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He cares about Nineveh and the 120,000 people there, but he still hasn't forgotten or neglected this little angry Jewish prophet. And that made me feel really great when I was you know, writing this. You know, God cares about the big picture, but he also cares about us. You know, the, the little angry people who get frustrated with the way life is going or don't understand the things that are happening. Sometimes it's easy to think, yeah, God has this big universe to run and it's this big machine. And yeah, he cares about me, but he cares about me kind of like the, you know, the bolt on an engine. Like, I, I kind of need to be there, but I'm really, I can be replaced. I'm a superfluous part. But God cares about each one of us individually, immensely, but he has not forgotten you and he will not forget you. In another part of scripture, he says, your name is engraved on my hand. No nursing mothers will forget their babies before I forget you. So God hasn't forgotten. Do you do well to be angry, he asks. Is it well for you to doubt my sovereignty? Not like, I don't understand why you're saying this, but is it well for you? Is, is it actually benefiting you? Like, do you benefit when you're on a jet airliner and you doubt you know, if the pilot's old enough to fly it or whether he's trained? Is that going to help you at all to doubt the competency of the pilot? Do you do well to doubt God's sovereignty? Is it well for you to doubt my loving kindness? Is it well for you to hate the salvation of the lost? Is it going to help you to burn with anger? Is it going to change things to be so mad? except that I, I read recently that you're drastically more likely to have a heart attack or a stroke if you're, if you're uh, getting angry regularly. Is it well for you, Jonah, 
to be sitting there thinking about death because the world didn't bow to you and your wishes. We followed Jonah in this story from the original command to go to Nineveh until the Ninevites turn and repent in the last couple messages, but there's still chapter 4 left after the Ninevites repent. And this means that the repentance of the Ninevites isn't the main focus of the book. It's just a big part of it. Again, it's more like the, the plot that carries along the, the lessons that we're supposed to learn. This story has not been about a fish or a ship in a storm or about a faraway land called Tarshish. I mean, it's not ultimately about Israel, Nineveh, or Jonah either. But this is a story about God and his character, about his love, his patience, his judgment, and his sovereignty. And in this fourth chapter, we're still learning about God, and he is still laboring to teach Jonah, the original Israelite leaders, and us about who he is and who we are in relationship with him. Do you do well to be angry? Notice Jonah doesn't answer it. In our passage this morning ends with this question, and, and we, like the original Israelite readers, are left to answer that question for Jonah. Does he do well to be angry? And as we think about whether Jonah does well to be angry, the finger starts to point at us, the readers and the listeners, and we're forced to ask ourselves as well, what about me? Do I do well to be angry? Do I accuse God and judge him? Do I believe that I could be running things better than him? Do I bring him before my own personal tribunal and, and judge him when I, when I feel like he's not doing a good enough job? And if we're truly examining our hearts with the lens of Scripture, are we seeing our anger at God or others justified? And that's something we need to do. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. You know that, that old cartoon from the 90s, Thumbelina, and there's that song, Just Follow Your Heart? Like, Follow the thing that is deceitful above all other things. Gotcha. Well, how do you know what the truth is? Well, you look through the lens of Scripture. That's what God's Word's supposed to do. It tells us. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.1 is a verse I like to read on Sunday mornings before I stand up here because it's Paul saying, I charge you in the name of God to preach the Word without ceasing, to rebuke, to reprove, to correct, to encourage you have to do these things with Scripture because we're blinded by our own deceitful hearts. Ephesians 4, 31-32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Do you do well to be bitter, resentful, to be slanderous, or malicious? Do you forget that before God, that we were all guilty and deserving of death, but in Christ, God forgave us? We talked about that last week. Christ's blood spilt on our behalf. Do we now, like Jonah, believe that we deserve God's forgiveness and mercy, but that someone else does not? Like, I'm really grateful that God forgave me, but this person does not deserve my forgiveness or God's forgiveness either. You know, harboring bitterness and anger in our hearts is like drinking poison and hoping that someone else dies. Bitterness and anger are like an acid that corrodes the container that holds it. If you're holding on to bitterness and anger, 
it will consume you and it will hurt your relationships with the people that you actually care about. You can't separate those things. There's no, uh, there's, there's no compartmentalizing bitterness and anger. It bleeds out into all your relationships. Proverbs 19.3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Jonah's own hatred and prejudice brought him to this suicidal bitterness. It's his own fault that he was so miserable. Yes, he had, humanly speaking, good reasons to hate the Ninevites, but it was his lack of gospel perspective, of perspective of who God is and what mercy is that is leading him to this bitterness. He's easily passing judgment on who should live and who should die, and he rages against the Lord for God's compassion and love when he should have been dancing in the street at the salvation of an entire city. Now, he could have gone back and say, hey, Israel, you know those enemies of ours, well, they're saved. They probably would have hated him. But if they had the proper eyes, they would have said, this is awesome, because now instead of 120,000 enemies, we have 120,000 brethren in the Lord. You know, Jonah still misunderstood mercy and grace in this stage of his journey. He still felt that, to some degree, that mercy had to be deserved, and the Ninevites did not deserve it. But deserved mercy is not mercy at all, and that's the crucial point that we have to remember as well. If we believe that we deserve mercy and that others have not deserved mercy yet, then we've also misunderstood the entire gospel. And we show that we have no idea who we are and we have no idea who God is. We must receive mercy because we cannot earn it. And God gives it to whom he chooses based on his sovereign choice and purposes and not because of our race, nationality, or moral uprightness. It was God's prerogative to save the Ninevites. It wasn't up to Jonah. God can save the Ninevites if God wants to save the Ninevites. So our question is, is our bitterness and our anger because of our own folly and our own pride? Are, are we steeping in bitterness? And we have to say, oh, it's this person right here. Is it? Is it really? Or did you make a foolish decision and you're too proud to, to repent of it? Or did this person genuinely harm you and you don't understand grace enough to forgive? That God forgave you, that you deserved death, and someone stood in your place who did not deserve to die. And who are you to withhold forgiveness now? So who are we truly raging against? Do you do well to be angry? And that's the question we need to take away this morning. Um, write it down somewhere and read it and think about it. I guess for me alone, it's on the steering wheel of the car. And when we have our anger and resentment starting to build in us, you know, read this and ask yourself, do I do well to be angry? Because if you're feeling bitterness, rage, and anger, slander, or malice, then we're holding on to sin, and we're forgetting who God is, we're forgetting who we are, and we're forgetting our misunderstanding of the gospel of grace. Be kind and compassionate to one another. That's the command for Christians who've been redeemed. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Christ didn't forgive us when we got, got our act together. God didn't pull the Israelites out of Exodus after they got the law and started to obey it. He redeemed them. He redeemed us while we were his enemies. Since we've been redeemed, since we've been forgiven a debt that we could never repay, 
know, how can we withhold forgiveness for others? How can we still hold on to bitterness, rage, and anger? Brawling, and the big one for Americans, slander. Is there anybody in this room that hasn't slandered somebody else in this room? Today, maybe? <laughs> Yesterday? Or we, we hop on Facebook and immediately start <clears throat> trashing each other. I worked uh, in my last job, I worked for an orthotics company called Superfeet. I was in operations. Um, and at one point, I was working with the shipping department. And we had this, uh, um, we'd go to lunch at about 11 and come back at 11.30, start getting our US mail orders ready to go. But the, kind of the schedule didn't work out with our, with our mail carrier, so he'd show up at 11.35 and wonder why we're not ready to go. And he was so mean. He would chew us out. He would, he would be so uh, stressed and angry and aggressive toward us. And then a few months later, I started playing guitar at this big church in Bellingham, in the first church I played at, who was there. This really nice guy who was the mail carrier. And he didn't recognize me because he had his Sunday morning face. And then he had his Monday morning face. He was not kind and compassionate. He was not representing Christ well. He held on to bitterness and anger and he vented it out on, on, the, on the world throughout the week. Don't be like that. We're ambassadors for Christ. We have the sash which says property of Jesus Christ on us and the community knows it. This church has a reputation. If you talk to non-Christians, they know about us. They know what we're like. They know what our struggles have been over the past two years. So be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Amen. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your mercy. These, these great attributes of yours, Lord, which Jonah seems to hate so much, we praise you for. Because we, Lord, were saved by your mercy. You relented of your anger for us because you spent it on Christ Jesus. Then we pray, Lord, that you just increase the capacity of our hearts to love you and to know you to praise you and to live our lives in response to this truth. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us and help us to let go of bitterness and anger and rage, to help us to control our mouths, because we know that these things are much easier said than done. That bitterness is deep, Lord, and it's really hard to separate, just like it's hard to separate tea from water again. But Lord, with you, all things are possible, and so I pray for this. Make us a changed people, because we're a redeemed people. We pray these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us for worship.
you want someone to pray with you, uh, come on up. One of our elders is here. And may the grace of God go with you as far as the curse is found. Amen.